Hi, my name is Willie Shi, and I teach at the Harvard Business School. I'm going to talk about what I think supply chains are going to look like in a post-pandemic world. I think it's helpful to start with a little background on the structure of modern supply chains as we see them before the pandemic hit. We live in a world where products are formulated and assembled in one country, region, or part of the world using raw materials, critical components, or sub-assemblies that might have come from many other countries that were far, far away. And in many cases, we see regions or countries like China that have a disproportionate dominance in the manufacture of particular products. Certainly in the case of China, this is a relatively recent phenomena, really the last 30 years. The rationale for global supply chains really comes from expansion of the tradable sector. As technology has gotten more complex, we have had to turn to a model where there is increasing specialization, particularly in the production of components and sub-assemblies. The modularization of many products, especially what we see in the IT uh, space, has enabled a specialization in division of labor. We only have to look inside a modern laptop computer or phone to get a picture of this. We see components that come from a whole range of suppliers, for example, in the notebook computer. The microprocessor uh, most likely comes from either Intel or AMD. AMD, in turn, relies on a supplier Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing to produce those chips for it. But it's more than just the microprocessor. You see components like the battery or the keyboard, which the assembler of this notebook has had to go to a supplier. What's really interesting is if you look at very complex technologies like the LCD display screen. In this case, it was assembled by really a network of suppliers. It at one end, the first tier supplier is somebody who assembles the notebook module, okay? And inside this module, you'll have a frame, you'll have a backlight assembly, uh, you know, uh, brightness enhancement films and so on. And then a key component of the module, of course, is the raw LCD panel itself. The LCD panel itself was probably manufactured by a relatively small handful of manufacturers all located within two time zones in East Asia. And that means initially Japan and Taiwan, uh, but increasingly Korea over time and now China. In fact, China is destined to become the dominant player even as uh, uh, the Koreans and Japanese and Taiwanese feel more pressure to leave because of commodity margins. Okay, but this LCD panel in turn relies on another tier of suppliers to provide the glass sheets, the polarizer films, the color filter array chemicals, uh, the silicon sputtered onto the glass. Okay, and the suppliers of those components in turn rely on a further tier of suppliers. Now, this specialization by suppliers has yielded many benefits. First of all, it decouples the development schedules for the end product. Uh, for example, if I am assembling notebook computers, uh, I can develop it independently of the schedule for 
the display manufacturer or the schedule of the company that makes keyboards. All those development cycles are decoupled, which is a huge advantage because it enables a much faster recombination and faster cumulative innovation. But it's a little more complicated. It means we get complex supply networks and these tiers of suppliers where an assembler relies on a next tier to provide components and subsystems, who in turn relies on a next tier. Now, the consequences of this redistribution of production have been many. There's been this increased tiering and loss of visibility because these supply networks are so complex. And when you get down to the third or fourth tier, the combinatorial problem becomes unmanageable. It becomes very expensive to trace that. And one of the side consequences, of course, of this tiering is increased fragility. An example of the fragility uh, was in 2011 when we had the Tohoku East Japan earthquake and tsunami, which uh, exposed how in many cases we had a critical supplier, for example, for automotive paint. There was one company that supplied the material that made black paint sparkly, and it it was shut down, uh, and all of a sudden, automakers globally could no longer paint cars black. Uh, there was another factory that I happened to visit at the time that made 45% of the engine microcontrollers in the world, which had a huge impact on automotive production, especially in Japan, but also in the United States and Europe. You know, this dependence on reliable and low-cost transport and logistics has also been kind of an outgrowth of this lean manufacturing model applied to supply chains, where people can count on uh, time-definite deliveries and therefore maintain relatively tight inventories. Everything has been about cost and productivity, and these risks of supply chain disruption have really been unpriced. What has put everything in focus, of course, has been the initial supply shock and the demand shock that came with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. So that's the shape of supply chains now. A lot of emphasis has been on scale and efficiency. Uh, that means we've become somewhat more concentrated in many sectors, like electronics, consumer products. The question is, what will it look like in the future? I would argue it's going to depend a lot on the sector. If you look at traditional labor-intensive soft goods, garments, shoes, uh, uh, consumer household, household products, uh, that's probably going to continue the chase of low-cost labor. I was talking to one Chinese executive who likened it to what he called the flock of geese model, who initially de departed high-cost uh, U.S. and Western European locations for places like Japan, Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, uh, and then China initially, okay, but we already see Chinese manufacturers as well as uh, global multinationals moving production of those types of uh, labor-intensive, not particularly capital-intensive, to places like Vietnam, uh, Indonesia, Thailand to some extent. In electronics, we've seen an enormous concentration in China. And that's because uh, in the period from the late 1990s until I would argue about 2010 to 2015, China put a high emphasis 
on bringing in the supply chain domestically. When China first opened up, it was primarily an assembly operation with logistics providers who assembled kits sourced from all over the world and shipped them into uh, export processing zones. China dangled a lot of incentives around manufacturers to get those supply chains localized into China. First and foremost, by offering access to the domestic market when you had greater than 50% content, right? So I would say between the late 90s and certainly around 2010, we've seen a massive relocation in electronics and, and a lot of technical products for uh, uh, the entire supply chains into China. How about autos? Autos is probably a preview of what I think uh, the world is going to look like. Uh, in the automotive market, we already see a heavy, heavily regionalized production. That might be a preview of what we're going to see, which is more regional focus of, I want to manufacture in market for those markets. Already you're seeing some of that movement with companies like Apple, who got their supplier Pegatron to sell their uh, Chinese manufacturing operations uh, to a Chinese company, LuxShare, so that they would have a Chinese manufacturer for the Chinese market. Now, one of the questions a lot of people ask me is, will we see more reshoring? I would say, first of all, there's going to be no tolerance for higher prices from consumers, especially in this global recession that we are suffering through. There's still going to be demands on efficient use of capital, and capacity. Scale advantages will persist, and this will be important for those industries that have a large footprint in China. But at the same time, resilience is on everybody's mind, and those unpriced risks, I think for a while at least, we will see more risk analysis in the form of supply chain mapping and categorization of suppliers. How much impact is this going to have on my revenue? Is it low, medium, or high risk? we'll likely see uh, what I call a China plus one or China plus two strategy where manufacturers will try to diversify some of their production, especially that destined for North American markets, and uh, produce it in Vietnam or Malaysia or Mexico. So Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, Mexico... Uh, I think are likely to benefit from this, but there will be some constraints on this, some of this growth because even a country like Vietnam where there's a rush of companies moving in to establish production there, there is, they're constrained by uh, the ability to provide large amounts of labor, which China is really unmatched, and their infrastructure is not nearly as well developed, especially port and hinterland infrastructure uh, for uh, shipment to the United States. That means probably more transshipment, longer transit times. The big question in my mind is, will companies be able to escape the gravitational pull, if you will, of China as the manufacturing hub of the world? Lots of components are going to continue com to come from there. And China has proven its efficiency, the ability to marshal resources and people and manage through the pandemic. The huge trade flows that we've seen in recent weeks across the Pacific, the shortages of containers in China, accelerated shipments of empties back, port congestion in places like Los Angeles, Long Beach, 
all of these things suggest to me that many companies uh, are going to have difficulty achieving escape velocity from China. At best, they might orbit around it. But there are some things that I think are going to continue, and that'll be the importance of scale, importance of efficiency, and companies who figure out how to respond in these changing times, I think we'll be able to reap many new opportunities.